It's my pleasure to welcome you to episode 78 of the Colby Cast, wherein four of Colby's wisest guys gather for a virtual men's night and have a discussion for the ages, spanning stories of childhood role models and adult cross-country moves before settling into a reflection on what strength is and isn't. With sacrificial love and the golden mean as their foundation, these gentlemen I'm honored to call friends talk about virtues to encourage in young men, how the idea that boys will be boys works against healthy masculinity, the commonalities between Marcus Aurelius and Marvel, the revolution of Christian leadership, Augustine's idea that those who give orders are the servants of those whom they appear to command, and so much more. We hope you enjoy. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic, and Colby homeschooling mom to four lads and lasses of middle and high school age. And this is Stephen, homeschooling father of five and director of development for Colby Academy. And I'm Jordan. As a product of homeschooling, I'm proud to teach Greek and Latin for Colby online and serve as the alumni and public relations director. All right. Well, welcome, guys. Good to have you here for the round two of a... Is it round two? We've never done this before, but um, we've all talked, I guess. <laughs> first time being recorded. Yeah, first time being recorded. So we've got a... Well, I don't know. I think I've talked with each of you, at least in a podcast. So we have Stephen Hayden here. We have Professor Don Prudlow. And we've got Mr. Everett Byarski. And uh, Byarski and Prudlow are sitting together. And that's kind of a rare thing on... Uh, on the Colby cast. How'd you, how did you manage that? I, I drove here from work uh, and it, uh, it just happened, you know, I mean, it's ever was so nice to invite me over and, you know, it's so important in these days to actually get together with people and to, to be present. Uh, and that, uh, and actually Everett, Everett did most of the heavy lifting. He moved from Napa to Tulsa. So that helped me out a lot in, in my arrival here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You made it happen. Thank you Everett for doing that for this show. You know, uh, absolutely. Well, I mean, the funny thing about that story is really the impetus for me ending up here in Napa goes back to the podcasts. You know, is that uh, the big celebration that we did with with gathering everybody in together and and talking about a variety of things, including the correct pronunciations of certain Star Wars walkers, uh, led me to thinking about and then me joking with one of the Colby people about how they should consider moving to Tulsa. And I went home that night and went, wait a minute, how come I haven't thought about moving to Tulsa? I've got family here. We've got a bunch of Colby people here. And uh, I mean, that was back in May. And now here we are in November. It happened and fast I'm, once you made your decision, huh? You know, it, uh, we, had, we finished a consecration in St. Joseph. And then we, and three days later, we had that podcast. Uh, two days later, we talked to a realtor of if we could pull this off. And he said yes. And we were here by the end of July. So you were leaving Napa basically when Stephen came on, right? Yeah, yes. Absolutely. It was exactly that time. His last day in the office was when I was out um, in July. I drove out of Napa at 3 o'clock that day to start uh, driving here. I mean, St. Joseph's been working overtime these last couple of years. I mean, he's really moving the houses. I'm not yeah. going to lie. He's, he's really uh, helping the housing uh, that, that's true. I, I bought a house for the first time. I, I didn't expect to. 
and then my all my family left my homeland of Colorado. I have nobody nobody left there. No immediate family members. They all moved to different places. It's kind of strange. And it's, we just fled California as well from Southern California for the last sixteen years out to uh, or fifteen years out to Arkansas now. And we didn't used to have a statue of St. Joseph, but we figured after moving here, given everything that happened, it was appropriate. So our, our St. Joseph statue just showed up a couple weeks ago. So now right out front of the house. Mm. Do you still have a, a big Mary statue also? Uh, the, the big Mary statue that I had, uh, I didn't want to move because it's incredibly heavy. It's mm. made out of solid concrete. Um, so I uh, donated it to a family for safekeeping there in Napa, and we just got a new one. Uh, yeah. a, a nice little Marian garden on the side yard. That, that was the sign when I, the first time I was looking for your house, I'm terrible at finding my way around. And, and I saw the statue on the street. I'm like, that's gotta be their house and pulled in was right. That, and that wasn't even in Napa. That was, that was another California town. So you've moved a couple times since I've known you. Yep. I think this is, that was the third move since I've uh, been with, with Nap with uh, Colby. Mm -hmm. Damn. So, Don, you mentioned uh, it's good to get together with people and important to get together with people. What is what's going on at your university now? Are you guys all in person and live? We are in person and we're, we're very happy to be there. We have a new president. We have who's very good, a new dean. A lot of changes from the previous administration. It was very anti-humanities. We've been able to have speakers in again. We've had speakers from the University of Dallas, uh, Dr. Susan Hansen. She was incredibly popular with our students. We had Dr. Jennifer Frey from University of South Carolina, who does a podcast of her own called Sacred and Profane Love, which uh, brings academics from all over the country to talk about their favorite literary works in a philosophical manner. I can really recommend that. So, so things, are, things are going well. Uh, and just that I had students over. We had five students, Teresa and I, over for dinner last Thursday, and that's always a great time when you get to, you get to hang around with your, with your own students uh, and especially your best students. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, things are starting to normalize. I'm trying to travel to Europe in December. We'll see how that's going. The situation doesn't look that fantastic, but speriamo, uh, mm. as they say in Italy. Where, is that where you're looking to go, Italy? Yeah, in Rome. Try, oh. try to get in the Vatican Library for the first time in two years. So, mm. you know, you can't interlibrary loan manuscripts, so uh, I kind of have to go there to look at them. What are you working on now? I, th I think I saw on your your uh, alumni page that you're doing some some research with some. Is it Latin text or? Yep, with Latin text. I'm uh, there's a text by Albertanus of Brescia, who is does one of the first Thomistic works in history. It's called De Officio Sacerdotibus. It's a book of advice for training priests from the end of the 13th century, and it's never been edited, and it's just sort of laying there and. Uh, so yeah, that's that's sort of what I'm working on now, especially training priests, training bishops throughout the tradition. The mm -hmm. um, because I was struck by a, a young priest. We took a tour of the Newman Center just recently, and this young priest said he was talking about how long he prepared for the priesthood, and it's you know it's like six years, seven years, eight years in some cases. And, and then I said, well, you're looking forward to being made a bishop, and he just the, the, the look of horror in his eyes was was palpable. And he said, and I said, well, how long do they train you to be a bishop? And he says, well. They call you up, uh, and uh, you know, two to four weeks later, you're ordained and in, in charge of a diocese, and they don't really offer you any training at all. And uh, maybe six months later, you can get to you know a weekend retreat or something where they. But so, so I've been working on texts like that from the tradition uh, about helping to form bishops and how to administrate and run dioceses. 
So when you edit that, where would something like that be published? Is it is it going to be in an academic series or something, or is it more for the layman? Well, we've got a new series coming out with St. Augustine's Press in South Bend for, for these training manuals. It's called Foundational Works in Church Administration. And so that'll be actually pitched to more public, more more the laity. Our bishop here, we have a great bishop, David Condorla. He did the foreword for it. And so that'll be available. And it's only going to be like 20 bucks or something. They, they do a great job at St. Augustine's Press. Check out their stuff. Uh, cool. The other things that I've done, like Summa Contra Hereticos, I do that through Oxford. So those are more formally academic texts. But I'm trying to pitch these, especially in translations, when I'm not doing a formal edition so that they're accessible to everybody. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And that, that's always one of the things, right? Your, your publisher chooses the price and then nobody nobody <laughs> reads your work. It's like the, my dissertation got published. It's like $80. I'm always telling people, don't don't buy it. I'll, I'll send you the PDF if you really care. And then there's a, a, a chapter that came out in a book. Uh, called Rene Girard and pop Rene Girard theology and pop culture. That book is not even two. I think it's right around two hundred pages, but it costs a hundred and some dollars. I'm like, yeah, that's really these European publishers, right? I mean, they're always trying to, and, and it's a prestige thing too, right? It's like Harvard, seventy thousand dollars, all right? And nobody's really paying that. That's the prices the institutional, you know, entities pay for it. But you're right, it's absurd. I mean, but but that that is the dissemination of important scholarship. That's at that level. So yeah. I mean, we want we know, and that stuff is not for general public. It's not for general consumption. And right. so we can do works taking from that research and speak and write in these more popular works that is going to that is going to reach a lot of people you know pitch it to where people are and we can we can get a lot of a lot of faces on the page i think yeah that that is kind of a, a challenge that i've been thinking about a lot is who the audience of my own work should be i mean i'm 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 torn i'm torn i've talked to steven about it a lot but i i want to eventually see see what i do even research and all that to to be for for the people that I know, the people that I've met through Colby, Stevens talk, we, we talk a lot about like developing this community. And I think like a meeting like this is, is a great opportunity where, you know, the four of us can talk in a way that, that we wouldn't have had a chance before. So technology has really given us an opportunity to get together in this way, at least share ideas and all of that. But I've been interested, Stephen, in your kind of passion for, for more community building and, and ways of getting our families together, that kind of stuff. What what are you what are you looking at? I know you've got a lot of things on the on the docket, a lot of ideas, but you want to talk about some of those? Yeah, yeah. Extremely introverted, so all of these are challenges for me. Um, but a lot of these families, especially you see it from COVID on, just don't have a local Catholic community that they can rely on. So, you know, first year with Colby, but working with Mother Divine Grace over the last 15 years. That's one of the things that just stood out um, that these people wanted somebody, some group to be a part of, for one. They wanted to be part of a community. And even if that meant they only get to see families, you know, all these families a couple of times a year, but can start to interact with them and start to feel part of something where all of these people are on the same page as me. They, these are the people who are going through what we're going through, the challenges that we're facing. And, you know, you can be really isolated as a homeschooling family and the relationships that I was able to, that we were as a personally able to build up, they weren't local necessarily, but through my wife, she would meet another homeschooling mom in 
Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh area, or here, the reason we're in Arkansas right now is because my wife and another homeschooling mother started a friendship and then our families became close friends. And when we were deciding where to move, it's like, well, we want to be where they are because we are, we are better Catholics. We are happier when all of, when we're all together. So, um, so that's the sort of thing I want to make sure all of our families get what they need. You know, all the, all the Colby families get what they need to really feel part of a community and be supported that way. So that's, that's kind of where the passion comes from, but I don't know. It's probably some holdover from wanting to be a Lutheran minister before I converted. So uh, <laughs> something that way, I don't know. I, I think that's that notion of community is really, I mean, interesting. And it's been an important part of not only something that we want to build for our families, uh, all the Colby families, but it's something that we want for, for our, our individual families, but also I think for our Colby employees. You mm. know, and that's been, while it's, it isn't the same doing it online, it's been something we've been try to be very intentional about doing uh, wherever possible online to really build some of these communities. Uh, we, you know, Steve and I just had a, a large kind of day long retreat for my entire team just last week to spend time doing some professional developments, but also fellowship, uh, sharing times of prayer together, uh, social times to, to really help build that community because we're just as Steve mentioned, we're better together, you know, as God created us as social beings. Um, and it's important to be able to kind of continue that connection. And then when the opportunities present, like we're able to get together with, with Don here and then the Prudlows, um, you know, a few weeks back, we were able to have a, a meeting there in Nashville at, a, at an education conference with the number of the directors and the executive team. It's really fantastic to come together, even though we live in, in uh, different places, to spend those time together. And I think because we have this these digital connections, when we come together in person, we're able to more easily pick up um, you know, than, than we might have been able to even two or three years ago. Yeah, for sure. And you know, one of the one of the things I was thinking about knowing that we were gonna do the the man show tonight was uh, you know, just trying to think back to role models and, and other men who sort of, that I look up to or that I looked up to, um, people that I knew in my past. Um, and and there, there's a guy, there's an old man that was my neighbor and he and his wife moved when we were little kids, bought some a parcel of land from my parents and built a house right there to sort of be like our surrogate uh, grandparents in a way. and. I was homeschooled, so I was able to spend hours and hours with this guy. And he was a World War II veteran, and I was just fascinated by him. He's very handy. He could fix anything. Um, he could make make anything with his hands. He was just really good. And I'm, ter- I'm to this day, I'm terrible at that stuff. But I love it, and I admire people greatly that are good at that. I've always wanted to be good at it. I try, and then whatever I do is just embarrassing. But uh, this guy he really taught me a lot about life and, and just caring for someone so much younger than you. And I mean, he would take us fishing. He'd do these things just out of the kindness of his heart. And, you know, th- that, that really shaped me. Of course, I would say that my, my father is probably who I looked up, look up to the most in life, but as kind of an outsider, this guy really meant a lot to me. Um, I have a book coming out about memoirs of growing up. And I, I noticed in my last time I read through it, how much I talk about this guy. And it kind of came back to my memory. It's like one of those things I kind of forgot about him somewhat in high school. 
and then he passed away right right my senior year maybe freshman year of college and then i realized wow so many countless hours were spent with him in childhood and i learned all about world war ii is waged in africa from this guy i mean he he was there and he told me all about it had a purple heart all of that i looked up to him so much and i'm just curious are there who stands out to you maybe maybe an outsider one um who stands out to you as, as as far as a childhood role model as a man? I had, um, I mean, obviously parents and grandparents, yeah, for sure. But and just because of the nature of the profession, uh, so many of my teachers growing up, I, I was sort of traditionally schooled. I went to that, you know, there are these schools with bricks and mortar and things that people go to, uh, <laughs> and so I went to those. And and most of my teachers were were female, and I had so many good female teachers. And just like I said, because of the nature of the profession, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of female teachers. But it was these male teachers, and I can remember the grades. It was second grade, it was fifth grade, it was tenth grade that they just showed me that, that, that there, was, there was something of, about of strength in teaching, uh, that there was something dignified and honorable, uh, that this, this was something that was a noble calling, and in particular that um, the life of the mind was something, was something virile. And that was a really, really powerful thing for me growing up. What about you, Everett? Yeah, I was thinking about that just as we were talking. You know, I think there's two, outside of family, I think there's two that really stand out to me um, in particular. The first one was was my pastor as a, as a young boy, as a teenager. Um, it was, he had a unique situation in that he had been, been married with children before his, his family died in a really tragic accident. Um, and then after spending time volunteering, he had people around him telling him that they wanted him become a priest and that's finally how he responded to the call of God. But I think Don just mentioned the, the notion of strength. And I think that was the his biggest witness is you know in society a lot of times we get the idea of that strength is it's it's bodybuilding, it's how violent can you be, um, it's how much can you take from other people that that they won't fight back. And and for him it was his strength was in his humility and his gentleness. Um, that you knew as a man, that he deeply cared for people, um, and that he would sacrifice for their good. And I think that's really, I mean, what what love is all about is, is that notion of sacrifice. And so the the witness, I think, for him was was that idea of sacrificial love. And then the other one is my cooperative extension agent, uh, which is a the affiliated with with universities typically, um, and usually involved in running 4-H programs. Um, in Alaska, 4-H isn't really a, a, a dairy farming. That's not really an ag thing because where we were in Alaska, that's ag isn't a big deal. What is it, caribou um, farming? I mean, what is it? Though? <laughs> um, so for us, it was we, this, the club that I was a part of was an outdoor skills club. Okay. Um, and so we had, we did, learned fishing and hunting. We, we tied flies. We carved duck decoys, um, camping and canoeing. Um, but, but for him, again, it was that same thing. It was... Uh, that notion of, of what is strength, and it was very it was an inner strength, uh, and it was connected to character, to who you were as a person, um, and that there were expectations, and that he would hold you responsible to those. Um, that he, it wasn't about um, obedience for the sake of obedience, but it was about holding to expectations because he wanted you to be a better person and a better man. And I think it really... Uh, helps kind of guide my formation, especially through those teenage years. And he would put us in positions of responsibility 
where we would have the opportunity to fail. Um, and knowing that he'd be there to back us up, of course, but we'd have the ability to really learn that we had real responsibilities. A lot of the time people talk about responsibility, um, but if you, you can't fail, then you don't actually have any responsibility. And that was something that he trusted a bunch of teenagers to do things that were real and that were important and were valuable. I think as a result of that, um, we grew as, as young men and, and in leadership. That's awesome. What about you, Stephen? Does anyone stand out like that? Boy, it's a, a lot of family for me. So like everybody's saying here, when you think about, okay, fathers and my grandfather was kind of exceptional in my background. So growing up Protestant, but when I knew him, he was like delivering fuel oil and uh, fixing furnaces. And I think at that point he had had, a, you know, an eighth grade education, but yet he was a very, I mean, it was a different age of education at that point as well. But, you know, every, you know, as we get close to Christmas here, we, uh, every, every Christmas Eve, it's when we gathered together with our grandparents, we knew he was, we were going to have to wait for grandpa because he would be out fixing somebody's furnace and happily doing it, you know, and spending time with us as, as grandkids. But so that's, I can, it's kind of that strong family growing up and some great pa Lutheran pastors that were really, Pastor Jeff Blaine, who was uh, kind of, we were doing a study on Romans as I was considering being a Lutheran pastor. And he was just so intellectually honest, you know, so we read Romans and they said, well, now we're going to read James. We're going to read. And so you think you understand, you know, it's just clear cut from our perspective, but let's try to make sense with this other book that we have to go through and giving me biographies of Martin Luther that, you know, not certain, certainly not a flattering end to his life, um, reading about some of his, his later statements and, and his views. And then just meeting wonderful Catholics, uh, humble, holy men. Uh, Barney Johnson was, I remember having, a, I was, I missed church for whatever reason. I was, I was a Protestant, but I was doing a, his family had asked me to kind of talk to um, some, some high school kids about uh, abstinence and, cha and chastity. And, um, and this, this was the first time I'd kind of heard somebody say these, there are definite views. Normally it was you treat everybody right. You take responsibility for your action coming from my back, my Protestant background. Um, but he was asking me, so what, so what was your, the sermon, what was the homily, what was the, what was the gospel today? Did, do you have the same readings? And it's like, I, I, my parents weren't there and it, it just ended up going to church. And that, that was kind of the last time he's like, Oh, okay. But that was the last, I remember that was the last time that I missed Sunday service without the serious thing, but they sent me out to Thomas Aquinas College, where then again, too, I, you know, met some great Catholic thinkers and my, my father-in-law when he was alive in particular, you knew that there wasn't anything that the church didn't have, or St. Thomas didn't have an explanation for that you could reason. I mean, so you couldn't explain everything by reason, but you would never act against reason. So it was a great kind of follow-up to that Protestant background of kind of thinking, no, it's, you just believe these things. It's like, no, there's an explanation for all of this. And if you want to dig deep enough, you can get that. So there's lots of, obviously, those are, so they're all family. They end up being family, I guess, to the most, for the most part, except uh, um, Barney Johnson there. But, um, but yeah, there's just a lot of great, great men, at least, that I've had the privilege to meet. I think it's interesting that um, that you mentioned uh, 
Ever and Don, you were talking about strength and and there's this idea of some of these masculine virtues that are somewhat besmirched today. It seems like they're they're treated as not virtues, I guess. Um, I know when I was sub when I was a substitute teacher, I had a, a classroom full of these inner city boys and they loved nothing more. They were young grade schoolers. And they love nothing more than when, like, on the hour or whatever, I'd make them all get down and do push-ups. And it just so happened they were all boys. It was, if there were, had been girls in the class, I don't even think I would have tried it. Um, but with the boys there, they, they loved that. And, um, you know, it was hand-in-hand hand with our learning, with what the lessons I was going over. And I could tell that they really appreciated this. It was like I was a coach, too, to them. Um I'm just wondering what what are some of the virtues that you see that that you think of that that are actually good things that should be encouraged in young men. I mean, one of the geniuses of church history is what it did to the barbarian nobility or pseudo nobility in the eighth and ninth century. They took these men of violence, these men of blood, and it turned them in a positive direction. And the church wasn't so foolish to say, "Is I'm gonna we're gonna we're gonna make these you know people." just pacifists. We're going to turn them into, into, into peace lovers. They said, these people have uh, energies which are proper to their calling, which need to be channeled in a good direction. And so it was the church that comes up with the code of chivalry. And it turns their violence into defense of the weak. It turns it into, it wasn't originally a code for, you know, uh, sexual relations. It was a code to provide guidelines for the men of Europe in order to in order to be good, in order to use their abilities, in order to use their proclivities, and to turn them into a positive direction. So many of those those ideals that the church puts into that, that concept of chivalry, and you can see that with the, the military orders in the eleventh and twelfth centuries, are absolutely needed today. Not in some sort of, you know, nineteenth century romantic, you know, revival of, of chivalry as, you know, whatever the, the uh, pre-Raphaelites thought it was in their treacly pictures, uh, but actually a robust knowledge that, that certain people have certain natural gifts. Men tend to be just naturally physically stronger, and that physical strength must not be used in some sort of a Nietzschean end in itself as power to exert over others, but rather in, in service and endurance and in care for the weak and particularly the weakest in society. And if we can do that, what, I, what I'm afraid of is that even a lot of people in the church in the last 50 or 60 years have essentially called men to feminine virtue. And, and that's really problematic. We need to call women to, to, to specifically feminine virtue, men to specifically masculine virtue. And a lot of that has led to a lot of the gender confusion as well. You know, we, we all share the core virtues. I mean, that's, that's key. And we're all called to those virtues. But in order to exercise them in our own particular state in life and with our own particular strengths and our own particular genius. Yeah, you know, that that is something that I'm really trying to kind of work out just conceptually is uh, with history, because when I read when I read in advanced Latin, Latin three at Colby, we read Cicero. And he has this idea of his first oration against Catiline. He is saying Catiline. Uh, aligns himself with the slaves, with the the dregs of society. Therefore, he is he is uh, not to be trusted. Whatever that it's it, it's the complete opposite today. So when I when I look back at, at Cicero, you you 
you wanted to disassociate those kind of people that seemed weak. And you mentioned Nietzsche, and Nietzsche, he, that's one of his criticisms of Christianity, is that it aligns itself with what is weak. And um, so are you are you saying like it's a it's not really a, a weakening, but it's a it's a shifting of how we apply the strengths that we already have. That's interesting. I, mean, I, I, I think Cicero in those Catalan orations was a genuine man. I mean, he was defending the good of the state. He was defending his people against against injustice. And I think what what he was what he was talking about is the servile mentality. It was the the servile uh, people that lived only for their stomachs or lived only for their pocketbooks. Uh, and so in, in fighting that, it was not necessarily the weak that he was, or the maligned, as it would later be understood in a preferential option for the poor or something like that, but, but people who genuinely weakened the, the polis. And, uh, and Nietzsche, I think Nietzsche was a very powerful man in his own case, but he was detached from the core of reality. And when you become unmoored from, from reality, that's when power begins to take over and you begin to exert your will. It becomes a will to power. And I, I, Nietzsche was an incredible misogynist, uh, too, uh, as well as being an anti-Christian. And so we see what happens when you when you dissociate strength from being a means and turn in, into an end, mm. which is which is what you know so, so many people on on both sides of the of the aisle, far far left, far right, tend to do today. They make power an end in itself. I was going to say, kind of to that discussion, it makes me think back to. You know, if we go back to uh, Aristotelian to Mystica, the idea of that virtue is the mean between two extremes, I think that's kind of where we ended up in masculinity these days. On one extreme, it's we need to destroy masculinity, we need to um, to weaken it, we need to, to, to feminize it. And then, and then the other end, partially in reaction to that and partially as a cause to that, was this, this notion of uh, masculinity as power, strength, accumulate as much wealth as you possibly can, and that's how we'll know how much of a man you are. And, and, and if those are your two options, you look at those and go, wow, they're both terrible. But you can see why you would look at, at this, this extreme masculinity and go, well, that doesn't work. We can't do that. But at the same time, you can look at the, the other end and, and, and see that's not going to work either. And I think that's the challenge that, you know, as a father of five boys that, that I'm trying to navigate is, is how, do we, how do we steer the correct course towards those virtues, those, those masculine virtues? You know, just this past weekend, I was out camping with, with my three oldest sons. Uh, we're part of a local uh, trail life scouting group um, that's a Catholic in nature specifically, a group of Catholics. And that's one of the things we were talking about with uh, on the trip was that what we're trying to do here really, yes, we're teaching outdoor skills, we're you know, learning about camping and spending time in outdoors, but really what we're trying to do is we're trying to form these young men into the kind of, of men that we're going to need in our society. And, and it's kind of in reaction to the, the idea that, that, oh, you know, boys will be boys. They will do terrible things and we just have to let them do terrible things. When no, that's not at all what, what masculinity is about. Masculinity is about discipline and sacrifice and perseverance. Um, and the reason things have gone wrong is because of attitudes like boys will be boys. You know, I was thinking of, uh, kind of hilariously after mass, because we all went to mass at the end of the camping trip, we bumped into a retired deacon who came uh, up to us to talk to us a little bit. And he has an uh, explosives museum. 
Um, and as you can imagine, with a group of, of 20 young boys and eight of us fathers, that's about the most fascinating thing imaginable is, is the, the idea of an explosive museum. So he volunteered that the next time we do a trip down there, uh, he takes us on tour through it. And so the troop master did a quick poll of uh, if we did that, who would be interested in doing that? And all 20 hands went up from the kids and all eight hands up from the adults, as in that sounds absolutely fascinating. Yep. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that the, conversations like this are good because it, it, it brings to the fore some things that, that aren't always talked about, I guess. And, and masculinity is hardly ever talked about in a good light. And so I, I wonder, I mean, you're, you're, you're right with the boys will be boys. Is, is the correct approach as far as sort of honing these, these things that we can give to the, the next generation or what, what, how we can point them in a direction? Is it a, a mission of going back and recovering what was lost? And, and if so, where, where is, where is the, the point that we go back to? Well, I mean, Colby's got the whole curriculum. I mean, you go back to the Iliad, you go back to you go back to Aristotle, the Nicomachean Ethics, and Cicero, and then we see it through Christian eyes in the Scriptures, right? You see the perfection of man in Christ, and then how it's lived out in a series of little incarnations in all of the saints throughout history. I mean, these these are the signposts. So, so yeah, okay, I'm I'm sort of a the small C, old school conservative. Yeah, I'm looking back. I think that this this wisdom is there for us for the taking, and we we just need to pluck it. We just need to need to get it. And now, of course, we need to apply our reason and and apply it in concrete modern circumstances. But the tools are there. Yeah, that 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 is something that is, is interesting to me because we have this canon, and 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 the attack is sort of on the canon itself. What belongs to the canon? How do we define the canon? And I'm always wondering, and, and Everett, you, you're involved in this too here at, at Colby, is how do we determine especially modern texts that belong to the canon? What are these kind of tools? How, how can we distinguish this last, this, this doesn't? Uh, no, I think that's a great question. I, and I think the first thing that we're looking at is what does this text reveal about the truth of human nature? You know, what does this tell us about what it means to be a human? Because really, when you go back to the classics in the Iliad and the Odyssey, the reason those were what they are is because they existed to teach Greeks what it meant to be a Greek. You know, what are the key virtues that a Greek ought to have to be fully Greek? And, and as Christians, as Don just said, we have the scriptures. What are the virtues that it means to be a Christian. Um, you know, looking at, at Jesus in particular as the true man, what does it mean to have those kinds of virtues? Uh, you know, going back to, to scriptures, the there's the call there in Ephesians uh, 5 that, that men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And, and how did he love the church? He loved the church so much that he gave his life up on the cross. He died. Um, so the love was a sacrificial love. It was love. It wasn't a, a, that Jesus was a wimp. That he was strong enough to persevere through all of that suffering because he loved the church that much. Um, and so it's a, it's a depth of love that will endure pain and suffering and difficulty for the beloved. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the the key is is what does it reveal about human nature? What does it mean to be a human being as you're looking at things? And and one of the biggest pieces we're gonna be looking at is is what virtues does this text teach? What does it reveal about um, you know what we're called to be a, a human as a member of society? Um, you know, I think back to a number of of books that we read is they're all looking at how do you fit into society as a whole. I mean, that's that you're right, because I mean, when we look at Christ, that's one of those my favorite jokes is, you know, like when you ask, what would Jesus do? You know, making a whip and flipping tables is, is always a possibility. I mean, that's, you know, so he's not he's not just some, you know, sort of uh, hippie. I mean, the hippie Christ is, is an absurd uh, caricature of the 1960s. But, you know, when you because Everett was talking about Ephesians five earlier and and people I, I think people, modern Catholics tend to worry about Ephesians 5 as they do about Corinthians, you know, because it's prefaced by, you know, women obey your husbands and that's, and everybody gets hung up on that. And that's the modern, you know, that everybody's worried about that. The O word is, is something terrible. We can't have that in wedding ceremonies or anything anymore. But then when I see what the tradition says about this and I see what, what, uh, so my, my students are reading city of God right now, we've got to book 19 mm. and I had a quote on that. Uh, and it said, this Augustine in book 19 of city of God, those who give orders are the servants of those whom they appear to command for they do not give orders because of a lust for domination, but from a dutiful concern for the interests of others, not with pride in taking precedence over others, but with compassion in taking care of others. And I think this is the Christian revolution uh, of, of leadership. You know, the first shall be last. And, and I remember an old movie, an old Italian movie. It said, uh, you know, the flames are hotter for popes. Uh, the, it is not an enviable position to be uh, in, as a successor of Peter because the responsibility is is so great. And so you have the serva servorum day. He is the servant of the servants of God. Uh, he's he's below all. He, he he rules all, but he's below all in that in that sense. And so that 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 revolution of Christian leadership is absolutely critical to understanding what's what's what Christians are about, at least in terms of virtue. So how, how do we combine that with then the like the the classical view? I mean, from the classical texts and and things, is it is it present there as well? This idea, this inversion that we see in the New Testament. I think so. I think when I read Livy and when I read Cicero, these people are there for the good of the state. They're there for the good of the others. The ideal of the Roman aristocrat is literally to spend twenty five years in public unremunerated service for the sake of your society. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I see it. I see it in pagan culture. Yeah. 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 It's, it is. Uh, I mean, there, there is so much light there. You know, I, 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 I troll my students a lot with different things, Lord of the Rings. And, and uh, like, I call all the classics pagans and things like that, but I, I cannot help myself. I love, I love Seneca. <laughs> I mean, Seneca is like, I, I absolutely love Seneca, and and there is so much light in that that I, I just wonder. And this is like kind of a off the wall hypothetical. If if Christianity hadn't arisen in the West as it did, if we weren't given this revelation that we've been given, and it happened elsewhere, or maybe not at all, would Western society would would Western ideas everything? Would we still be practicing? Stoicism, for example, in the way like that the East is practicing Taoism or Buddhism or, or whatever it is. I mean, I wonder, are those equivalents? 
hard to, for me to separate those things just because it's so you you know going from uh, Plato to to Aristotle with the again the Nicomachean probably mispronounce that the ethics is what I'll call it how about that Every, all the groundwork is is laid out there in a in a way as you're saying is is a means between extremes but also just these in order to be happy I mean, so obviously you don't have the the theological virtues, but you've got this foundation laid, but laid out, but you still know it's not enough, right? There's still something lacking, and so that's that's the fulfillment of that Christianity. But I think our current one of the major major problems we're we're fighting against is we've lost that pagan virtue in today's world. I mean, I would talk about this with some friends if you're watching popular television and this is not just today i don't watch any popular television today but if you were to watch it even going back into the 80s you see the undermining of of virtue in men you know look at sitcoms look at movies the men are just they're buffoons they're idiots they're they're slaves to their passions um, so they're intemperate they're sometimes they'll suddenly become courageous they'll show some fortitude from from time to time, but especially sitcoms, they're they're obviously laughable. But but even when you're watching movies, the the, the characters that are truly virtuous men that you see, I mean, you're going to go back to like the Gregory Peck and the um, the uh, Charlton Heston sort of movies to get where you're actually getting a lot of characters who are particular. Not that there aren't exceptions, but that virtue as the the basis to build on. So. I think to, to the note just there about something lacking, uh, I taught tenth, our 10th grade theology course for a number of years, and so, which is the, the Church History 1. Um, at the same time as we're going through that, the students are doing Roman literature and Roman history, uh, and that we read Marcus Aurelius. And when they start off reading Marcus Aurelius, they always think, wow, this seems really Christian. Mm. And then as they get through it, they go, but there's something missing. <laughs> you know the the they, they, in the stoicism they see the the emphasis on certain virtues and and so they can kind of pull that goodness out of it but then they're left with an emptiness as it doesn't go all the way it doesn't it doesn't get you to where we end up as christians and so while there there are hints of truth in it it, it doesn't, at the end, I think, and that's one of the, I think, the great things about what we're doing is that we can go and we can read the Greeks and then we can read the Romans and we can read Marcus Aurelius and they can actually come to that conclusion where the initial reaction is virtue, fantastic, but they're left with the hanging, but it isn't enough. That without grace, the virtue isn't perfected. That's, I, I, I agree with that. And, and to, to what Steve said, uh, I think that's about the popularity of these superhero movies today, right? I mean, why do these make billions of dollars? Because it shows men who are flawed but are still trying to do good things and right things, right? People aren't going by the millions to art house movies to see the latest postmodern, you know, absurdity where, you know, somebody, you know, dies in horrible ways because of their own idiocy. They're going to see superhero movies. Uh, and even if they're not, you know, high art, they, they do point to something. Um, but, you know, and, and also I'm to Jordan's question, uh, I, well, I don't, I don't really even accept the validity of Jordan's question because, uh, uh, I, it, Christianity could have taken hold nowhere else. It had to be in the West. God willed it to be at the union. God willed there on the title of the cross to be written there in Greek and Hebrew and Latin. 
that is where it was. He wanted that in his providence to be the fulfillment of those three cultures, to fill what was missing in each one of those three cultures. Uh, and, and in a way that couldn't have, couldn't have happened in, in China, certainly couldn't have happened in India. I, I think China would probably be the closest possibility for, for any sort of uh, correlatives. But I mean, they're, they're not, there's not enough of them. Uh, the providence intends there to be this, this union, which is why Christianity can take hold in any culture, but it's essentially Hebrew and Greek and Roman at the core. And you can't, you can't take those out. Many people have tried, and you can't. Hmm. Yeah, I, 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 as a language teacher, I, I can agree. Uh, you should learn Greek and Latin, and maybe, maybe even Hebrew someday. <laughs> it's the language that. of God, Augustine says. Yeah, um, and and I notice like my my daughters like to watch uh, these Disney shows or whatever. The father is always the joke. They, you know, he's always it's always a rebellion against the father. Somehow they they're able to to spend them like that, um, and I I, th- I think that must be part of the attack, just like the cultural attack somehow on on fatherhood, on masculinity, and this um, self self sacrifice ever that you're talking about. I guess I guess then this this would mean so Christianity was was destined to happen. It was providentially determined, I guess is a better way of putting it, to happen in the West. So it was like they were being prepared to be able to explain in the best way possible using Greek terms and all of that, to be able to explain what what is going on, to have the New Testament written down in Greek, the most precise language that you could imagine for such a thing. Um, does that mean, so self-sacrifice it wasn't a complete addition then. It was it was starting to be known, I guess, starting to be revealed, and and it was just ripe at the time that the church emerged. I mean, even Augustine can't hold himself back from admiring some of the pagans, right? I mean, he loves him some Mucius Scaevola holding his hand in the fire, you know, mm-hmm. and freaking out the Etruscans because the Romans are just that tough mm-hmm. that we're willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to save our city. Yeah, there's there and and with the Maccabeans, I mean, you, you see that you see that there too with the presaging of martyrdom. Um, I mean, it's it's these these points are, are just there. They're just waiting to be filled in. They're waiting to be connected. Hmm. Hmm. Well, well, I think to even that point. So, I mean, this is the, we're talking about the, really the story of salvation history here. So the the notion of of not having Christianity doesn't even make any sense unless you go back to not having Judaism, and not having Judaism doesn't make any sense unless you go back to not having creation. Um, I mean, I think that's the story of salvation history. It begins at creation with all of this and then the unfolding. And that, But at that same point, the notion of admiring the pagans, the, the most effective missionaries, uh, somewhat ironically, the Jesuits, were famous for the way they would analyze the culture of the people they're evangelizing, which, and they were capable of doing that because of their education. And where possible, they would learn the language of the people they were evangelizing, again, which they were capable because of their education. And then they would take what is good within that culture, what are the elements that's, that, that can easily tie to Christianity? So there, are there elements of, of sacrificial love? Are there elements of virtue? Are there elements that, that resemble prayer that they can then take and say, you know, what you're currently doing is 
is like what we're doing, but, but this is the, the refinement. This is the fullness of what you're doing, that you have this partial truth, and they're here to present to you the fullness of truth. Yeah, so it's it's interesting that we got to talking about salvation history and, and a lot of this within the context of a man show and, and talking about role models and, and passing things on to the next generation of men. And I, I think what you're saying too, Abra, is like these people were educated, right? They, they were educated and then we took the tools that they may have already had and refined them, baptized them, I guess, in a way. I mean, it's 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 like when I was in Germany, they had um, they had a certain symbolism that was originally pagan in these little local places. But but what as a priest described it to me there, he said they that the Catholics took it and just baptized it, whereas the Protestants got rid of it. And so you see less of it in the in the Protestant areas. In fact, um, there was one I asked. Uh, he, I knew he wasn't a believer at all. And I said, why do you why do you have this this symbol? Um, and he said, because I'm told it works whether or not I believe in it. So, so, so I, th- I think that, that I think there is something to that. And I and I recently I read an article where in France they are they are doing this movement. Their their educational minister for, for all of France to restore the classics. And so they're wanting to start teaching Greek and Latin again in schools and things. And it's sort of a, a movement against um you know, the, the migration that they've had there and the, the shifting of their culture. And I'm wondering, are we doing the same thing in the United States? I mean, is what we are doing at Colby, is it a pushback, like a corrective pushback against a foreign culture? Or, or what is it that we're trying to, to instill? And in? what, is, what is our motive for doing what we do? Definitely think it's it is that that I mean in this where for me this is why our fam one of the reasons why our family decided to homeschool I was from public school, and so before I, I was married we knew this is the direction we were going to go because the I mean as as we talked about seeing the breakdown of virtue in popular culture in a public school it's it's more intentional it's the breakdown of I mean any concept of morality in in so hopefully people are blessed to be in a place where they have an exceptional school or whatever but most people aren't and you can't take that chance so first you say okay i've got to break away from from this indoctrination of uh, well this false indoctrination and then it's okay where can i find something that is bringing back these ideas and for you know before I went to Thomas Aquinas College, you know, I didn't know about all of these ancients and that, bef- you know, thousands of years ago, before Christ, there was somebody talking about virtues and how to be good and these habits and what what it is that man pursues, which is happiness and the way to be happy is virtue. I mean, this is all achievable through natural means. But then so you can find Colby that now has has intertwined all of that wisdom of the ancients with the revelation, which helps to provide a great formation, a necessary formation um, for the intellect, but for virtue as well, for the building up of virtue, I think. Yeah, there, there was a, on First Things recently, they, they published, um, James Hankins uh, published this, this article 
and it was talking about the right or the wrong side of history. And he was he was saying that uh, he's anticipating that in a decade, students that are educated the way that we are trying to educate students at Colby will really outnumber and and it, they will they will form this new elite is what he's calling it. So it's not an elite based on on status or or money or whatever, but the ability to think, the ability to reason, um, those sorts of things, as compared to students who are currently in public school system and they go through that system and they come out maybe more confused than ever. Um, it's a it's a great article. I encourage you to check it out. But I I wonder. What do you guys think about that? What do you, I guess, what are your thoughts about the future? I know we've had a huge influx of students and across the board, tons of people looking for these ways of classical schooling at the younger levels. What, what are your hopes or what are your thoughts about the future? Well, I'll hop in first there. And I think I'll probably actually take the contrary on this one. That while I think that's what I would love to see, uh, at this point in our culture, I suspect 10 years is wildly optimistic. And I, at least my, my guess, you know, looking in the future, uh, attempt to do so was I suspect that that what we're doing is countercultural and will probably likely be countercultural. If I had to bet, and I immediately think back to that tenth grade church history course, I think back to the the cycles of Christianity, that there would be periods where Christianity um, is not persecuted and it grows and it thrives, but then as it grows and thrives it starts to uh, to weaken, to become less effective because there's there's no one pushing it um, to change. And I feel like right now we're in that decline of that cycle that Christianity reached a, a point of decadence that, that felt that that you know, no one could touch us, that we had nothing to lose, and we probably failed at evangelization uh, and really effectively evangelizing culture. And I think right now we're, we're in that downslope towards being the persecuted minority of, but, but I think that that actually makes what we're doing all the more important because if we don't do what we're doing, we're not going to survive this. I, I think I, my, my vote would be that what we're doing is essential to, to the survival of, of Western culture, which is something that uh, um, John Harden, uh, Father John Harden said was, was talked about the necessity of homeschooling um, for the future of, of the church in America. That, that this that, that almost this remnant that is going to seek to preserve um, what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, um, so that we can be there as there's an opportunity to eventually rebuild. I mean, let me be slightly more slightly more optimistic because I see where Everett's coming from completely, and I and I agree with many of his points. What I do see, and what a lot of studies have shown is that students who, uh, and if let, let's say we broaden the tent a little bit, so not just students that are homeschooled, not just students that are classically schooled, but students who have gone through um, uh, honors programs at many universities, students who have been intentionally educated in how to think and how to speak and how to write at the, at the college level, uh, you know, in good liberal arts programs, they are rapidly advancing within their careers. Uh, in their companies, all right, because they don't possess merely simply technical knowledge. They are able to deploy the technical knowledge in ways that enable others to understand, to bring others together. And so, and so it, it's amazing that, you know, liberal arts degrees within, I, I can't remember if it's 10 or 15 years, equalize salaries in technical fields 
and then exceed them for the rest of their careers. Hmm. And so what, what you've got is, is you've got people that are rising to the top who are, who are transcending this sort of utilitarian view of education and, and not just Catholics, not just classically educated people, but more broadly. And there are still places to get this kind of education, even, even in, you know, at big universities and uh, the ones that do take part of that, they're, they're rising to the top. And so there might be a window where people in 10, 20, 30 years start to see the value of this type of education. Uh, because I, I do think that you're seeing it in charter schools and classical schools uh, all over the country. Uh, they're starting to see this and they're just at the edge of starting to see it in college too. So there, there might be, you know, we might get bailed out at the last minute before persecution start. Not sure. But, you know, there's, there is a, a possibility to what the, that author was saying in first things. The, 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 what's going on in our culture is self-destructive. So, I mean, over time, I mean, it's going to devour itself, right? It, it, this happens with all corrupt society. So as Catholics, and particularly from our background, I think we have, or what we're trying to do is how quickly can we bring together that intellectual thought so we can, we can express clear thoughts, um, but in the light of our, our faith, how ready are we to evangelize now? And because the more we mobilize, the more we get this moving, the shorter that time frame can be. If, if we sit back or if we remove ourselves to a certain extent, I think the, the long-term damage is going to be catastrophic then. But if we can, I mean, people are desperate for happiness. That's what every man longs for. And our society is deadly right now. So if, if we can show them the happiness that the faith brings, that even, and, and express it in intelligent ways so that they can use their reason to bring, people are going to be drawn like, well, like I've never seen before because there's a, they're desperate. They're desperate for what we've been given. Um, so we have to make sure we're sharing that. I think it's the, the biggest pivot point. And I think that's absolutely key. You know, even though I painted by far the uh, the most desolate of the futures, the there's the temptation to say, well, we need to just retreat. We just need to give up the battle. And that's the one thing that we absolutely cannot do um, and if you want to talk about masculine virtue, the masculine virtue is to persevere in the face of all of that. It's to continue to evangelize. And in fact, because of how bad it is, we need to do even better. Um, so that's the point that Steve's making about that evangelization, that if, if anything is going to keep this going, it's going to be the kinds of things that we're doing here. And it's that importance of building that community, is that, that you have to have that community to survive. You can't you, you can't go on without having that community. You know the I mean goes the, the notion goes way back in Catholic thought. Uh, you know in more recent times, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger before he was uh, the Pope talked about islands of spiritual concentration, the importance of having a community that is solid, that can come together, that can provide life, so that we can go out and evangelize. The the community can't just turn in on itself and become this this enclave. But it has to be we return to the community to be strengthened, to be educated, to receive the grace of the sacraments so that we can go back out and evangelize. 
it's got to be public. It's got to be evangelical. It's got to be the, if you want a, a, a map of, of virile virtue, the 12 apostles, right, going out and going to the four corners of the world and in extremely uncomfortable places, right? The societies they went to, I think of Thomas in India uh, or Peter in Rome. Uh, these are not, or Paul in Ephesus, that was a gross place. Uh, the, the, this is where we need to be. We need to be in these societies. And I, I perfectly understand the tendency towards Benedict options and, and, and particular to, to especially creating shields around families, right? Around children. But uh, at, at a certain point, you've got to take that child and you've got to send them out and they've got to be soldiers of Christ. And that's why the preparation, the education is so absolutely critical. Um, we can't retreat into those little readouts because we'll get overwhelmed uh, at, uh, that's the end of the story. Yeah. And that's the beauty of, I mean, so this is again, why we turned to homeschooling generically originally, but in Col the Colby, uh, Colby in particular, you can see this is, you are preparing. So you don't send your, you don't hand your child a sword and send them out into battle, you know? So you've got the, the preparation and the building up of the family where, you know, the, where the father and the mother become a really prominent, their prominent roles in the children's lives now where you know they can you can still do that whether you send them to private school public school or whatever i think it's harder in those cases but but colby does allow you to take your to gather you to strengthen your family build them up in intellect so they know there's reasons for all of this the virtues the faith and then you know they're getting exposed to even in our community you're going to be exposed to all different sorts of viewpoints too which is good um, your family can decide kind of what's acceptable for your children. That's that's the grace is given to parents, but that allows you to build that unit up so that you get these well-adjusted kids who are going out and they're just able they're able to communicate with young people, with old people, with with everybody, and engage in an intellectual but you know loving sort of way because they have that background of the the family, the love in the family, and um, these great examples that that we talked about earlier. Um, yeah, so I think this is, it's perfect. It's per, a perfect solution for our society. As I say, to, to turn that maybe back on itself, especially connection with what Steve just said, I think one of the key uh, ideas there is that of fatherhood, that what is the role of fatherhood in um, in all of this, as a part of this? So often, especially in working with homeschoolers, we work a lot with the mothers um, because mothers tend to be the ones who, are, are taking the, maybe the lead at least at the most uh, direct level when it comes to, to, to homeschooling, maybe to education. But I, I think I'd maybe turn it to the others. What's the role of fatherhood in, in both education, but also in formation and, and ultimately in preparation? Yeah, I mean, d direction, overall direction. I mean, that's uh, one, of the, one of the things I, I mentioned was uh, attention to the whole. Uh, moms are so good at details. They're, they're so good at making sure everything is happening at the right time of the right day, making sure the dinners are planned, uh, making sure the homework gets done. Uh, the father is, should be attentive to the whole of the child's education, to what is the direction, what is the end, what is the purpose towards which this is going. And, and to demonstrate that, hopefully, you know, in his own life, you'd say, you know, I've used this education in order to get to, to this point so I can discuss X, Y, and Z with, with this person. Uh, and so that, that attention to the whole, I think, is, is really critical. And that's where men and women complement each other. 
uh, and as uh, you know, I God sort of knew what He was doing with marriage. I think, uh, and it and it really happens that that different strengths are brought to the table and reinforced uh, in one another. And uh, and so, in a certain sense, the mother is inward facing, and the father is outward facing uh, in these in these senses. And that the child is taken in in a certain sense. I mean, the, I, I think of the old Spartan society where the child is you know raised by the mother till they're seven, and then and then they're put into the outward facing world, uh, which is more uh, which is more public. And uh, and and that kind of transition needs to happen throughout the course of the course of the child's formation. In a certain sense, the father should take a more active role, I think, as, as we get nearer to the high school years uh, and, uh, and and those sorts of things. Yeah, I, th- I think that's really important. I mean, I, I talked to somebody recently who really wants their children to be homeschooled, but he realizes it'll, it'll be a burden. They're, they're young. They're, they're in grade school. It'd be a burden on his wife. And he's like, she's not in the way that I am. So that kind of a balance, like, and it's interesting to hear the practical tips of in high school, it sort of shifts because now you're looking at beyond high school and uh, you're looking at the long-term plans for the children. And, you know, I was, I I was thinking while, while you guys were talking about the names of the the kids that you gave and you said a, a Don, you were saying a template for um, the most masculine men of all are the the twelve apostles who went out, and um, uh, so sometimes I think that 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 a name of a child really matters. I mean, it's like it, it takes a lot of consideration. My son is named Thomas. It's kind of a family name, but but there's a, a draw to Saint Thomas from from the Gospels. Um, and I, I, I just wonder what what goes into naming your sons. And Everett's going to have a few uh, few examples here for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, I can start us off. Um, we've been really intentional in naming, and the, and and for that reason is because we want them to have connections to to certain saints and to virtues, knowing that they will have these intercessors for their entire life. One of the my favorite things about the the way we try and live spirituality in our household in, in the liturgical life is that we celebrate their saints' feast days. So, so every time they have a feast day, we, it, it's a celebration that, uh, you know, they'll choose dinner or they'll choose dessert. Um, we light their baptismal candles, um, to, as well for the, for those, um, the ones that are connected to their baptism. So I'm, my oldest is, is Nathaniel Paul. So we have, uh, um, Nathaniel Bartholomew, one of the, the 12, and St. Paul. Uh, Paul is a family name as well uh, that goes back. Uh, I'm Everett Paul. My, my father was also has Paul as his middle name. Um, so it was retained, but it was, reta- but it was intentionally retained because um, of St. Paul. Uh, we have Aaron Michael, so St. Aaron from the Old Testament, brother of Moses, and of course St. Michael. We have Peter Francis, so again, our, our first pope, and then Fran- named after St. Francis of Assisi. And then we have... Matthew Lawrence. So again, then we got another apostle and Saint Lawrence, um, the early deacon. Don't forget uh, any now. Uh, right, that's what I'm running out of it. And then, uh, and then David Joseph. So again, Saint David, who is, you know, both greatest of sinners and and great redemption story, and Saint Joseph. They're almost all biblical names except uh, Lawrence. Yep. Yeah, our, I mean, the rule that we're using is uh, first name is biblical, second is a saint. 
mm. is the kind of what we ended up going with. Uh, you don't necessarily need to go that way, but um, I think that's been really fantastic for us. And then Nathaniel was just recently confirmed and chose St. Joseph as a confirmation. Mm. That's, that's so great to be so intentional about it. I think that's that's critical because we see naming in Scripture and, and, the, and the quality of the name and the power of the name in Scripture. Uh, it's 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 one of the most important things I think a parent does. It's a way that a parent stays with a child throughout the rest of their life and even after the parent is gone. Uh, and so this is a very very important thing. So and it, you know daughters are important too. So we had uh, you know we had Monica and Monica with two N's correctly uh, because she, she should have two N's in Punic dialect because we had a devotion to her and and she helped us very much and and I, and I read the confessions with my students every year. And the character of Monica, I find, is endlessly fascinating. I think she's she's one of the coolest saints in in Christianity. But for our, for our second son, we were both Irish, and we wanted to connect our family. So there's some family names, but with sort of the, so the heroes of Irish history. So it's Eamon Daniel Padraig uh, with the Gaelic spelling, mm. and so Eamon is after Eamon de Valera, who I have kind of a who is the the, the first president of the Republic of Ireland, but also Saint Edmund of Anglia. Uh, and then uh, Daniel, Daniel O'Connell was the liberator in the 19th century, but also Daniel uh, from the Bible and also a family name. And then Padre, who was St. Patrick. And so I, I think you can you can have multiple intentionalities with these names. I mean, and you can please a lot of people, too, because sometimes you can say, you know, this 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 yeah. name is, you know, so, sort of a family name. But our final son, it was after my dissertation. My dissertation was on St. Peter of Verona. Uh, who was um, uh, the proto-martyr of the Dominicans. And so he's Peter Dominic Thomas. And so it can't be any more in your face than that. I mean, it's the most Dominican name you possibly can uh, can conceive of. So that, I think, lays bare my predilections, and he's just going to have to live with it. <laughs> Likewise, I guess we actually, all of my children have four names. I mean, three names plus their our, our last names. So I have a Peter George Carl. We kind of anglicize Pierre Giorgio, but... We've got St. Peter, Blessed Pierre Giorgio, and then Carl was a family name, but he's actually baptized as Carol, so the, the name of St. Pope John Paul the Great. And we have Raymond, it was a difficult pregnancy for my my wife, but I think we've got like three Raymonds, St. Raymond Natus, St. Raymond of Penafort, and there's another one that I'm forgetting right now. Um, also, Raymond is, a, well, Raymond is, is Maximilian Colby's uh, name before he joined the religious and I, we it's a family name as well but raymond anthony marcus is is his full name and then we have elijah alexander vincent so alexander is kind of alexander the great slipped in there a little bit but we figured to uh, kind of hope that maybe maybe on his deathbed after doing magnificent things and being proud and in the books book of maccabees maybe Maybe he found a way Maybe into Saint heaven Gregory somehow. Maybe St. Gregory prayed for him. It's possible. Yes. Like <laughs> yeah. yeah when I, I know when I found out that I was having a boy, it was, it was interesting. We'd had three daughters, and then they, they, don't, they don't like to do ultrasounds in Germany. They'll, they'll do just one at the beginning and one towards the end. And um, they said, yeah, we, we don't really know, but it's most likely you're having a girl. And um, it was the last ultrasound, the one right before he was born, the second ultrasound. They said, oh, you're, you're having a boy. It's definitely going to be a boy. And so we had picked out, we were going to name the daughter Edith Petra after Edith Stein in uh, Germany. She was in Göttingen right down the street from where we lived. There was her house that she had lived in as a student in Göttingen. So 
No, Edith. I think uh, both mother-in-laws were pretty happy about not having a Edith <laughs> in the family. So, so, so we kind of had to switch it up, but it, um, but it, but it landed on Thomas, and I'm, I'm very glad it did. <laughs> so, and sometimes, yeah. sometimes you get a little aggressive too. Like I wanted to name uh, Eamon, uh Richard Godfrey Raymond from Chesterton's Lepanto poem. Like it is Richard, it is Raymond, it is Godfrey at the gate, you know, the, the terrifying the Muslims and, and, and doing all these things. But, but Therese saw him and he said, she said he's an Amen. So she picked, she picked, because we always didn't find out. We didn't, we didn't find out until they were born. So I always thought that was kind of fun. I, I haven't met Amen. I guess he's, uh, was, was he a student at Colby? Also? No, no, he's, he's autistic. So, so he wasn't, he's just at home with us. And so he's, yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's always four years old. So we're, we're, uh, even though he's, he's 20 years old and about 220 and can probably take me in a fight, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, Monica, I, I, I did notice her, the spelling of her name also. And I agree that is the correct way of. Thank uh, you. Yes. Why do the Episcopalians admit it and not the Catholics? You know, that's just embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I echo what you say about St. Monica. I think that's great. There there will have to come a time. Maybe all our wives should uh, do a parallel show sometime. Get, get the Catholic, watching. the Colby women's show. I mean, that's that, that would be a great, great idea. I think it would. Yes, it definitely would. I think, it, I think it I think we'd have to work that one up. I'll have to talk. There's a lot of dangerous it. stories that come out that way. Well, they can't have this at the. They're going to have to have tea, like like Bonnie. <laughs> yep. yep, tea. Maybe some wine if they get if they get uh, courageous enough. <laughs> we can edit they'll, it. It's all right. They'll they'll be able to go down the same some of the same things. I mean, talking about the corruption of female virtue and how. You know, you end up in today's culture with this little waif of a woman just knocking down all of the big burly men with their their strength and that basically taking away all of what it means to be a mother and what the you know the blessed mother would have been like and saying, No, the way you need to be virtuous, my daughter, is to be more manly than the men are today. Um so they 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 can take up that conversation, I guess, when when we're not here. Yeah, and and that goes right back to the inversion, right? So they pretend to be strong, and in their they're trying to be strong so much that it's almost like they're giving up true strength that they that they have that they were given. Well, that's what happens when when you go for this notion of sameness is that if, if you have that idea that sameness is that the the women need to become more manly and the men need to become more feminine so that they can be the same. When, and we lose that richness of, of true diversity, as Don said, you know, the, 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 that you know, God created the male and female, that, that he had a plan. Um, and if you, if you go to sameness, then the plan goes awry. And, and what's the end of sameness? It's 50 recognized UN genders. I mean, that's, that, that's where sameness has led us, though. I mean, the collapsing of the two genders. Yeah. Yeah, the loss of distinctions, uh, it, it, never, it never works out since uh, Genesis 1. <laughs> So, yeah, I don't know. Is there anything you guys would like to add? I think this has been a really fun conversation. I don't know if there's something that came up that you'd want to throw in here towards the end or. I'm good. This is, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for setting this up. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And next time, next time, you know, since, since Steve is so close and Jordan comes in, when Jordan comes to town, we'll, we'll have a in-person. Yeah. We we need to do it. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. We get Steven up there and we'll sit down and talk in person. That would be great. 
I think that would be fantastic. Yeah, I agree. I, I think just, again, that, that opportunity for fellowship. Um, and I think especially as men that there's the, the notion of, of male friendship has kind of been lost, in, in yeah. which I think is a result, again, of that splitting into those, those, those two vices of false ideas of manhood, that throughout history, male friendship has been crucial um, to, just to what like, it, just like female friendship is crucial. Yep. I mean that God made men and women for each other, but I mean, there's, there's a reason why there's male friend groups and female friend groups. This is absolutely natural as well. I mean, this is, you're absolutely right. Um, but it feels like it's something that's been lost. I think, you know, in the last 10, 20 years that, that the notion that if you're friends with another, they're male, there's really only two ways it can go. You know, it needs to be uh, beer and football. And while I like beer and football uh, very much, I think there's more to friendship than that. Um, having conversations like these, um, uh, or or it's the other end, and so the this notion of of the male fellowship, the the iron sharpens iron, uh, I think is a really important uh, facet of of masculinity that needs to be recovered. Yeah, friendship for sure, and I, I will confess there are two things that lower people uh, in my eyes quickly. One is if they refer to their kids on social media as kiddos. And the other one is uh, <laughs> the, other, the other one is if somebody tells me like, another guy tells me that their best friend is a girl they knew in high school or something like that. I'm kind no. of like, I don't no. know that I believe that. You know? <laughs> no, that's not. Yeah, I not think. Far. Yeah, it, it, to me, at least in our family, what the the most beautiful things end up being when you find a family that just fits. You know, so like where you know, my wife, it's close friends with the the mother and, and I can become friends with the father and we can talk about being good Catholic fathers. And then you watch the kids interact and you've got, you know, your 17 year old playing with their six year old and there's all, and then, but then turning around and, and having great conversations with their children or the, the children of their similar age. So if you can find those matchups, I think it's just a beautiful a beautiful thing that you can fit all that together because then you both have these great friendships with other men with other men and women with other women but also it doesn't it doesn't have to take away from your family as a whole you can get together at, at dinner and you know then you get all of these different participations from you know the youngest to the oldest when you're when you're chatting and you know usually me and the other father are ending up sitting at the table for an hour or two after dinner and continuing yeah. that. But, but it's a, it's a, it, that's the most beautiful friendships that, you know, I've experienced in our family life at least. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and it's amazing what, what a wedding ring can do. All right. A wedding ring makes it possible to have authentic friendships across gender lines, right? Because <laughs> there's the border. Here's the, here's the, we're not crossing this. And now all of a sudden we can have people over and, and we can have mixed. And then all of a sudden, naturally it happens that the men go sit outside and they smoke a cigar and maybe talk a little football or, you know, Catholic fatherhood or whatever, you know, it happens. And, 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 uh, and the women uh, gather together too and talk about things that are of interest to them, things that husbands and wives don't always have common interests in and that's okay that's good yeah that's right and i i am glad i will say i'm glad we didn't end up talking about football tonight that's for sure but the other thing is <laughs> i am also glad i think both jordan's team and my team have both uh, had some rough times recently yeah, yeah. my team had a bad time this weekend too so we, that's stayed, we stayed away from that so that's good but also projects can get done in these situations when you have people over it's like thanksgiving 
my brother is coming over with all his kids and his wife. And I know that we're going to be outside setting up the ice rink for the winter. Nice. And uh, drinking. Old school. Yeah. Yep. That's right. So that's, that's, and my wife's perfectly happy with it. She's like, yeah, you guys go out there. We're going to grill the turkey and set up the ice rink. And we We used to have backyard rinks all the time in the Midwest. That's what you do. Yeah. You set it up. Thanksgiving. Exactly. So, you know, you can get uh, you can get some fellowship and get something done also with a with a friend. Uh, now I'm gonna have to tell Jordan. I'm gonna have to tell my high school girlfriend what Jordan thinks of her. That's yeah, the- there you go. She's not your friend. <laughs> Don't trust her. <laughs> She's not your friend. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but that is, that is so true, man. When I meet even like high schoolers who are like tell me their best friend is a girl or whatever, I'm like, it's not it's not gonna last. You're not gonna say this girl's not gonna come to your funeral unless you marry her. Like, you, it's not a it's not a real friendship in the way that I think of friendship. So I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm the old man now. I don't know. But it's been that way since I was young. I mean, when I when I met people in high school that would say their best friend was was a girl, I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> the, the the one said contrary to have to that, it, it's a pretty big one. Is in the homeschooling, one of my favorite things I hear from our homeschoolers is when siblings talk about that their sibling is their best friend, um, and sometimes it is. You know, I, I remember um, we were doing the interviews, and and one of the one of our homeschooling students. Uh, mentioned that her best friend was her brother. Um, I think that was one of those things that just stuck out to me. Now, obviously, it's different because we're talking about family. But I think that's one of those beautiful things that sometimes comes about in homeschooling is that notion that your siblings would be best friends. Uh, And I think that as a parent, I can't think of anything better than that, that your siblings say, who's your best friend? Um, It's my brother, it's my sister. And of course, in in, in these days, if, if you went to a public school and you told anybody that your sibling was your best friend, they'd think you were we're, we're crazy because how could you possibly think that someone two years younger than you or three years younger could be your best friends? Yeah. Yeah. Cohorts. That's got to be in the cohort. Yeah, that is awesome. So, yeah. Anyway, well, I think this was this was good. I mean, I I, uh, I really appreciate this. I'm looking forward to doing it in person. I'm sure it will happen at some point. So thank you guys. Thank all of you for showing up and hanging out with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you, Jordan, for, for helping us set out. And uh, it's great to meet you, Stephen, hopefully in person sometime. And thank you, Everett, for letting me come over and, and, uh, and drink in your office here. So. Fantastic. Thank you. Absolutely. This is a great pleasure. Uh, and uh, what I think we, we've got an hour and a half of uh, content for you to have to edit now. This is, uh, uh, I don't know what the longest episode ever is, but I think we might be pushing it. You can't edit this. This is gold. Yeah, it's all gold. <laughs> this this is the Matt Frad style podcast, I guess. Here. Except for maybe my kiddos' remark. I don't know. I, <laughs> I, think, I think it's essential to really getting to the heart of what makes Jordan Jordan. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna get some people mad at me for that one, but uh, I don't know. <laughs>If you haven't already, subscribe to the Colby Cast in your favorite podcast app to make sure you don't miss an episode. And we'd love to hear from you, so feel free to email us at podcast at colby.org. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam.